Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Barbara Hannay is the multi-award winning author of more than 50 novels, boasting sales in the millions across different countries around the world. A former English teacher, Barbara is yet another driven Aussie who has bravely set out to follow her dreams and become a published author. Her brand new novel, Meet Me in Venice, published by Penguin Random House recently, demonstrates why Barbara is now at the top of her game. A beautifully written, compelling Australian drama with an international flavour, Meet Me in Venice was a moving read about a fractured family and the choices that could make or break them. I'm delighted to welcome Barbara to the podcast today. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Claudine. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be chatting with you today. Having been fortunate enough to have travelled to Venice a few times myself, I was captivated not only by the premise of your book, but also by the way in which you were able to capture the magic and the mystery of Venice in the storyline. An ancient city full of romance and dark secrets, it was the perfect backdrop to the Benetto family's adventures. Can you tell me what was the spark of inspiration for this story? Well, the, the actual spark came from one of my writer friends who was telling me about a friend of hers who was a widow and had adult children scattered around the world and wanted to gather them together. Um, she had her gathering in Edinburgh, but um, I just, you know, as soon as I heard that in a conversation, I, my, my writer brain started ticking away and uh, I thought, I'd, I, you know, I checked with her, is it okay with you if I write that idea? I wanted to make sure she wasn't going to use it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then um, I thought now... I didn't know Edinburgh very well and I, I wanted somewhere that, that had really called to me. Um, and I was lucky enough when I went on long service leave um, some time back actually, uh, we had nine weeks in Europe and Venice was, or Italy was the very last country that we'd visited and I'd loved everywhere that we'd been, the UK, Cornwall, Scotland, France, Spain, all those countries had just totally witched me. But when we got to Italy, it just seemed to ramp up to yet another level of, um, I don't know, old world romanticism, um, just all the, I, I'd, I'd studied art at school too. So being able to go to all those galleries and see all the Michelangelo and everything else blew me away. And then getting to Venice, which was just such a uniquely different um city on so with such a fragile relationship with its environment um I was totally blown away so it seemed the perfect spot to me to 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 have the story set yeah yeah I couldn't agree with you more now I've been very fortunate obviously to have read this beautiful book but for those who haven't read it can you tell us what it's about it's about Daisy a widow whose husband died 12 months earlier um, very sadly, just before he was due to retire, which actually happened to my grandfather. And I've always been conscious of of how robbed you feel when someone gets to the end of their working life and then they don't get to enjoy their retirement. And she she's feeling alone and with her family scattered. She has a son working in Silicon Valley and a daughter in London who's an actor, um, just one child still at home who's just finished year 12. 
and she just wants to gather them together and try and recapture some of the happiness of of when they were all a family together at home. Um, she chooses Venice because that was where Leo came from. He was born there. Leo was the patriarch of the Benetto family and, you know, his untimely death seemed to highlight the fractures within his family. They're all pretending that everything was fine and they're all yes. fearful yes. of revealing the truth of their circumstances to, to avoid, you know, obviously hurting their family. And it seems to me that Daisy intuitively understands this yeah she she does start to pick up that everything's not as rosy as her children are pretending because mark's marriage is in serious trouble in fact his wife had walked out on him um not long before they get this invitation to venice and he has to work really hard to persuade his wife bronte to put on a pretense for this holiday just to keep his mother happy because he thinks his mother deserves you know a little slice of happiness Um, and Anna is struggling as an actor in London she she was very talented and everybody at home expected her to do great things but of course the competition in London is horrendous and it's just been so much harder than she ever expected and she doesn't want to have to admit this to her mum either So, so so they've both got Things they're trying to keep under wraps and and have just a a happy holiday, but these things always have a way of surfacing. And of course, mums have got that radar (laughs) (laughs) to pick up on any tension in their children. So um, she she is conscious of. I, I guess there's always a potential to worry about your kids no matter what age they are too. I agree. And I think as the eldest child, Mark bore the brunt of his father's lofty expectations, didn't he? Yes, yes, as, as yeah. the eldest and as the only son. Yeah. yeah, there was the definite sense that he felt a pressure to be the perfect child and that overachiever. Um, mm. Do you think that that's a birth order phenomenon? It can be, yes. I'm the eldest in my family and I think I've been a bit that way inclined. And I think I can see it in my eldest daughter too, actually. But it may not happen in every family. I think whatever the first child chooses, the the next one in the order sort of chooses a different slot, doesn't don't they? So yeah. I guess in some families it could be the second child that that is the more ambitious one. Anna certainly had it easier than her brother in that her, yeah. her parents' aspirations for her were not as demanding um, as they were for Mark and certainly even less so for, for Ellie, who's yes. number three. Yes. Yeah. Um, I thought Daisy was a, a remarkable character and I think um, I think she could have been really cliche. She could have been the meddling, interfering and overly dramatic mother, you know, putting her own pain and needs ahead of those of her children, but she didn't. Um, whilst we were privy to her thoughts, she knows that things are not all as they seem, but she lets her children get on with the job of finding their own way forward. Um, and I loved that about her and I think there's some lessons in there for those of us with adult children, isn't there? Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Because sometimes I wondered if she was a bit too hands off, but but yeah, I think I think it is once that once they're adults, they do need to be able to give be given their own space to make their own mistakes and work everything out for themselves. Yeah, I have adult children, so I, I think in this story, I'd been through the same or oh, not the same, thankfully, um, experience of widowhood, but the same experience of motherhood that that. Um, I've probably written about more closely than I have in any of my other books. I found that a really refreshing take on parents with adult children. Oh, thank you. Great. I must admit I was a little worried that um, 
she was a little too underconfident. But um, I did try to make that was part of Daisy's journey to mm. to, to get more more confident as time went on. Yeah, I think she did a wonderful job. <laughs> <laughs> now Venice provided the perfect contrast to Mark and Anna's lives in particular I thought there was something uniquely European about the lifestyle there everything kind of moves at a slower pace you know there were no there are no cars the distinct absence of the kind of background noise that city living is famous for and it certainly gives each of them the chance to reflect on what's important doesn't it yes yes I think yeah I, I don't think I actually realized that myself until I was into the story and and thinking more closely about their lives in Silicon Valley and as opposed to Venice. But it did give a really good contrast for them, yes. especially love the tension between Mark and Bronte and the pride that, that seems to keep both of them from telling each other how they really feel. Do you think that pride often gets in the way of love? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Well, it certainly does in romance novels. <laughs> <laughs> of which um, you've written plenty. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm sure it does actually. Um, I'm usually writing about people who are meeting for the first time, not so much um, exploring a relationship that's been in place for quite a long time. Mm. Um, although I couldn't resist going back and having a little glimpse into how they met. Yeah, I um, liked that. That was great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so Barbara, with so many novels to your name, how do you keep coming up with fresh story ideas? You know, I really think that what happens is that once – once you're in that vein, um, it's a bit like if you're an interior decorator or something like that. You know, you're just whatever it is that you're really interested in. You you just learn to be on the lookout all the time. So, I guess eavesdropping people's conversations um, just it just comes from all uh, so many different sources. In this story. Uh, as I said, it was something a friend mentioned. Sometimes it might be just a, a, a headline on, in a news story. But once, once you know that you're always on the lookout for things, you just start collecting ideas and keeping them on the back burner, I guess. I, I always like to know when, when I'm writing one story, have a vague idea of what's going to be ready for the next one because that gives me comfort. Mm. But I, I have to admit, I also have the good luck of having a husband who's also a writer he's also very patient and he's a great brainstormer he's learned to put up with me when I tell him his ideas are rubbish <laughs> um, but he'll just continually you know happily throw spaghetti at the wall with me until we we think we know we've hit on something that that will work so that's a really lucky bonus I wondered I mean how much research did you have to do for this novel oh quite a lot apart from having been to Venice I had to um, read up a fair bit about Silicon Valley and the lifestyle there also the the whole London scene um, and Venice of course itself but I have written um, some other novels that have had World War II historical threads through them that took much much more research so I didn't feel this was a, a research-heavy project. Generally speaking, in terms of your more contemporary uh, books, do you plan how you write those, or is it more of a? Are you more of a pantser? Yeah, I'm fairly much a pantser. I'm a, I, I suppose I'm somewhere in between. I start with the, an idea um, or a, a situation that my characters will find themselves in, and I, I know have to know that there's an emotional component to that situation. Then I work out who the characters are 
and and where the setting will be. And I have like to have a few vague ideas of, of where the story is going to go. But I don't like to know everything, have everything plotted out really carefully because I like to surprise myself along the way. Um, with this, and, and it, it often depends what craft book I've just been reading too. Oh. With, this, <laughs> with this story, I read um, a fascinating craft book called Start Your Story from the Middle. And he, he says that in the middle of, he, he looks at movies first of all, and a lot of really good script writing um, craft books are very applicable to novel writing. And he says in just about every movie, when you get to the middle of it, or, or, or novel, you get to the middle, there's a point when the the main character virtually looks in the mirror. It mightn't be physically looking in the mirror, but examining themselves and realising something about themselves that they've got to strengthen or fix or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I worked out what my look-in-the-mirror moment for Daisy was going to be so that's one thing that I had planned fairly early in this story and I found that helpful for, um, for, for her character development. I didn't know when I started out how, how Anna was going to end up and um, nor Daisy for that matter. So, yeah, there's a little bit of planning plus pantsing. That was fantastic. I, I'm always fascinated to learn how writers approach each individual novel or, you know, their craft as a whole. I think that the answers are as varied as the writers themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and and it can change from book to book. It's a yeah. bit like how it's a bit like how every kid's different. You know, every, every birth is different. Every every creation of a book seems to be different too yeah. from what I can tell. So Barbara, you published a number of category romance novels along with rural romance and now contemporary stories with romantic elements. So I wondered, number one, whether you're concerned about the way your books are categorised and number two, did you deliberately shift away from the category rural romance in recent years? It is it is disappointing that, that books are categorised as um, romance being, you know, non-clever, for want of a better word, um, non-literary, um, predictable, um, cliched, stereotyped, all those things. Mm. I, I must admit, when I actually first started writing them, or what led me to write them, I was um, a high school English teacher and we had to do a unit of popular fiction. And we looked at detective fiction, action adventure and romance and the whole aim was to see exactly how predictable and stereotyped these little romances were. Um, but when I read them, although I, I mean, it was easy enough to pick holes if we wanted to, what, what blew me away was the fact that, or what, what they did, they reminded me of the books I loved as a girl, um, Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, all those classic girls' books that all had a romantic element to them and um and I was just captivated I I hadn't read a Mills and Boone until I was in my 40s um and as soon as I did I just thought I I knew I discovered the thing that I wanted to have a go at writing myself so the next Christmas holidays I I started but yes um I've certainly discovered since that that, that they can be quite looked down on, especially in Australia, more so I think in Australia than in America. I was lucky enough that um, an editor from Penguin actually approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing for them. 
Um, and that's when I wrote um, Zoe's Muster, which was my first um, single title novel. So, no, it wasn't a deliberate choice on my part. It was more like um, a golden opportunity that that dropped down from heaven yeah. um, to, to do something. I, I mean, I must admit I probably always loved the idea of writing what my mother would call a real book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and when I did start, I, I was sticking to the rural theme and then I started adding in the World War II elements as well. Um, but then after a while... Uh, to be honest, when I when I submitted this last um, for this last contract, I put in um, two ideas to my editor, um, and one was uh, set in Australia, and the other one was this Venice one. And she she really got excited about the Venice one, so that's that's why I wrote it first. Um, so it's been more stumbling along than <laughs> than a, a deliberate choice I think my readers still love the outback stories I wrote an, a small uh, outback story for Chule an American um, digital imprint earlier this year that was very well received so I don't think I'll ever give up writing those other stories as well I wanted to explore the romance writing a little further with you for a moment if I may mm. um, hot off the back of the annual romance writers of Australia conference in Melbourne last weekend which I attended I was surprised to learn of the decent numbers of predominantly female writers earning quite a good living thank you very much from writing romance um, I mean in Australia at least most writers are told how, how little they can expect to earn from their writing endeavours and certainly not enough to live off or to support a family but a recent article in the Guardian um, suggested that many of Australia's best-selling authors kind of fly under the radar by virtue of the fact that they are romance writers um, why do you think that is? That's because of the stigma of romance I think you know Stephanie Lawrence was an amazingly successful author in America, um, New York Times bestseller, getting seven-figure advances, um, just astonishingly successful. But she was, Australia seems to only revere certain kinds of writers, I, I feel. Even Leanne, Leanne Moriarty, I heard once, wasn't really accepted or, or lauded in Australia until she'd already made it in, in America. Um, so I, I have no explanation for why this happens, but I, it just does seem to be a factor, yeah. That same article in The Guardian suggested that, you know, a lot of our romance writers haven't been able to find success here in Australia, but certainly have found that success in America, where it seems to be a much more accepted genre of writing um, mm. and, and much more popular obviously it's always a very interesting phenomenon to me you know that lingering bias against romance writing that we seem to have here in Australia it's quite widely accepted in the publishing industry that the most celebrated books or authors are not often the best selling and yet many of the best selling though not all are the least celebrated kind of feels to me like it's somebody telling other people what they should be reading instead of what they enjoy. Well, that's a very good observation. I don't think I can improve on that. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you totally. I wondered, for the many aspiring or emerging writers who listen to this podcast, what would be your top three tips to achieving publishing success? Well, I think number one is to read widely and then write the sorts of things that you love to read. I think some people, times people want to write what they think will sell and force themselves perhaps into a, a, a corner that, that, that doesn't totally fit. So, yeah, work out what you really love to read and, and, 
and and write something similar, you know, as close to to the, your favourite kind of story as you can. Um, if it's a romance, I think joining Romance Writers of Australia is a a really important step. Um, not only do they have the annual conferences that you've just been to, but there's all kinds of online workshops and particularly good competitions that can get you in front of editors and and different publishers um, if you're a finalist, which which is certainly part of my journey that I really appreciated. There's also a, a monthly magazine that has craft articles. So, and there's a, a community of fellow writers to join and um, network with that that's really helpful. So, there's a lot of reasons to join, if not Romance Writer of Australia, of Australia some kind of writing um, organisation. Thirdly, and this is. This is what I feel personally is a really important one. Don't give up. Um, so many people I know give up. Um, if they're trying to be traditionally published, that is published by a, um, by a publisher like Penguin or Mills and Boone or whoever, they give up at the first rejection. I know so many people who've done that. I just think it's such a shame. So persistence is half the battle, I think. Being prepared to accept that just because you can write doesn't mean you can write something that other people will want to spend money on and read. You need to serve an apprenticeship the same as you would for any other job. So there's a, quite a lot to learn and, and that might involve writing three novels before you you know, you know hit the mark So or, or more. I, I have friends who, who spent 10 years trying to get published. You've got to be in it for the long haul, I think. Yeah, um, and, and I think you know now that self-publishing is available. Of course, it's easy to to get in that way. Probably you learn just as much doing that by reader feedback as you do by sending off to editors. I'm I'm not sure because I haven't tried that route. So Barbara, what's next for you? What other projects are on the horizon? Well, I'm writing a follow-up story to to Daisy. I don't know if you remember in the story she had a friend Freya. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working on Freya's story at the moment. Won't tell you too much more about that. <laughs> uh, and when can we expect to see that? Oh, I've, I should imagine this time next year. I might have a, a shorter um, outback story in the meantime. And I am dreaming of writing a um, Christmas short story. But whether I actually manage that or not, I don't know yet. Right, if uh, readers wanted to connect with you, how could they do that? I have a website www.barbarahannay.com. I have a Facebook page, Barbara Hannay Author, and I'm on Twitter. I, I am on Instagram as well, but very, very, no, I couldn't really say I'm on Instagram. <laughs> I have an Instagram account. That's about all it amounts to. Uh, Barbara, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to chat to you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book and I'm sure readers out there are going to enjoy it as well. Thank you. That's lovely to know. Yeah, I know. I love being here. Thanks so much. Now, listeners, for your chance to win a copy of Barbara's beautiful new novel, head over to my Instagram account or Facebook page and follow the prompts to win. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>